maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Welcome to the Evening Glass, your long-awaited, much-anticipated, grossly outdated rumination on what we were excited about then and what we hope to get excited about now. On the occasion of their 20th anniversaries, we consider perhaps the best-written film of the 90s, George Armitage's Gross Point Blank, and the optimism, joy and big wheelie-style swagger of mid-90s blockbusters and Barry Sonnenfeld's Men in Black. years and 20 years now it's 30 years on the 14th of august since the release of dragnet mm-hmm. starring tom hanks and danny Aykroyd, and 20 years since the release of a favorite film of both luke and mine gross point blank and i'll give luke a bonus as well it's 20 years since men in black a film that i saw at the cinema one of the first films i saw at the cinema without my parents uh, and I think it showed my journey into adulthood because in the same year, around that time, in the same 12-month span, I went from Men in Black with a couple of friends but on an organised trip with a parent to A Life Less Ordinary oh, wow. and Jackie Brown. It was a 15, but I got him when I was 14, I think. So that's definitely from the sophomoric and the kidsy. Yeah, wow. But somewhat daring into adult cinema. Yeah, in yeah. A, Well, not, not literally adult cinema. So it happened in but, 1997. Um, you became a man in 1997. Where would you like to start with this grab bag of anniversaries, which I felt we should honour? Men in Black, that was the summer, same summer as Lost World, Jurassic Park. I remember that well. I think I... Yeah, I, and was it also Batman and Robin and Godzilla as it, well? No, Godzilla was 98, so that was the following year. And um, uh, okay, so so I saw Godzilla the same year as Fight the Future, then, right? Yes, X Files movie. Yeah, uh, yeah, was ninety eight as well. Yeah, Men in Black. I didn't get to see it at the cinema. I think I was. I mean, I'm a few years your junior, so I would have been seven, eight. I think I was ten, nine, nine, ten years old, and I was watching. I watched Lost World a couple times that year. I remember. And um, Men in Black is one that I caught on VHS. I remember going to Woolworths and buying it on VHS, spending a few more pounds of my pocket money so I could get the one that came with the making of Men in Black bonus VHS. Uh, And also Woolworths were doing a deal where I got to, um, I think an extra 2 99 or something, I got one VHS cassette that had both Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 on it. Because, of course, they're both Columbia pictures. The funny thing was, we, me and my brothers used to watch Men in Black a lot, but we were already Ghostbusters fans, and then when we had them on, on VHS, we watched Ghostbusters 
probably ten times more than we did Men in Black. So that's one of my prevailing memories of Men in Black is it kind of gifted me the Ghostbusters uh, 1 and 2 VHS. And I'll st- I've still got that somewhere to this day. It's quite special to me. Oh, good, good. But, uh, They're in a similar spirit now you mentioned Oh, it, very much they? so, yeah. I mean, the, Comedic, big-budget blockbusters. About the supernatural. Good comedy directors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. That's why they paired it. I mean, Woolworths. Woolworths knew what they were doing, Fletch. That was in the, in the <laughs> days when Woolworths were making really shrewd business decisions. So, anyway. <laughs> uh, but Men in Black. Men in Black, the film was... Um, oh... It, that was that was one of those uh, defining films of the year, wasn't it? It really was. And, and I, I remember, I think even before I probably bought it on video, I remember go, renting it a lot. It was one one that a friend and my friend Roy McMillan and I would rent on video on a Friday night from the local garage and uh, watch quite a lot. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely picks up on the vibe of the time because, of course, it it does what so many of our favourite films do, Fletch. That lost art. It has a theme song that was released yeah. as a single and was a hit and had a music video. I'm glad you brought it yeah, up. Yeah, how fun is that? It, and it is lost as well. And the sequel even the sequel had a decent one with um, Bob Your Head, Black... Black's, Black's is, Back, Black Suits Black's, are Back. Black Suits. Yeah. Bob Your Head, Black Suits coming, whereas I always sung it as Bob Your Head, Black Shirts coming, like Oswald <laughs> Mosley and the British Fascist Party. But, uh, yeah... This is the, the cultural saturation of the film during the 90s, and it's the same with Titanic. Yes. It was usually the case that a tentpole blockbuster release would have packaged with it a big song. Now, some of these have been lost to the annals of time. So, for instance, do you remember who did the track for Speed? Oh, God, no, Sample lyric, not at all. Speed, give me what I need. It's Billy Idol. Wow. I, I wouldn't... It's, I, not, it's not bad either. For Billy Idol, it's not I bad. I wouldn't have even guessed he was still releasing... Re- I thought he'd have stopped releasing records a couple of years before that. And the Lethal Weapon films always came with something by Clapton or produced by Michael Kamen, the, um, the conductor. Mm-hmm. I do miss it. I suppose there are different avenues through which to sell a film to teenagers. It isn't necessary any longer to have something in the pop charts. And again, who cares about what the pop charts are? There was a point where I think Ed Sheeran had 18 songs in the top 20, or maybe even 20 songs in the top 20. Something crazy, because things don't mean what they used to mean. Um, And I'm not criticising... Popular music has always been both good and bloody terrible. But uh, I do miss... The, the yeah the the soundtrack release the 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 theme song release that's uh, one of the most fun things about Pineapple Express mm. by David Gordon Green is that it was packaged with an end credits track by Huey Lewis in the news mm. very much in tribute to the eighties and nineties pictures so for instance Michael McDonald did a track for Running Scared Ghostbusters had Ray Parker Jr. Going gets tough for Jewel of the Nile. Yeah. Some of these tracks, they're so big that we forget they were even paired with it. Um, Mannequin had one, didn't it? Starship. Nothing's going to stop yeah, us now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I don't associate the two things together. Um, yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. But whereas with Men in Black, the CG alien was incorporated into the video. Yeah. And all of it is it's a very specific period of fisheye lenses and um, <laughs> self-reflexive humour. You know, at the end of the video, Will Smith holding the neuralizer. Sorry. Yeah. Zump. Yeah. Whenever the music video makers were able to book it, at least bookend it with the actors from the film. Mm. I want listeners to get in touch with their favourite niche theme songs from niche releases that we may have missed entirely. But that's that was this is the thing in terms of consuming the film Men in Black. That acted as a trailer, didn't it? That wet the appetite. It absolutely did. Because as a as a comic property, it was by Malibu Comics, and that's to remind the audience as well that. 
the 90s was full of comic book adaptations it's just that marvel didn't yet have the schutzpah to get involved it was kind of dipping its toe with blade mm. by the end of the century yeah yeah we were talking about the other week weren't we so blade obviously for marvel was one of the first times i think that it really whetted their appetite to go all in with these comic book films and i guess the rights were tied up for various properties with with, with different companies you know i guess you know i think they've done incredibly well to do what they've done without having the rights to Spider-Man and X-Men from you know, from day one. It's pretty pretty phenomenal, which is obviously yeah. two, of, two of the yeah. flagships. There were plenty of comic book movies in the in the 90s. You just forget about them. Because on the face of it, you go, oh, Burton made the Batman films in the late 80s. And, um, and then what? We didn't have anything till X-Men. Well, obviously not mm. true, because we had like The Saint and The Shadow and, and all, all this kind of thing. That was... Uh, oh, I guess The Saint isn't comic book, is it? But... Uh, there was there was the shadow and uh, and like Men in Black is an, another example and there are some more. Yeah, they just went a little bit weird. A mystery man came a from one. Flaming Carrot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the mask. Hollywood producers went underground and uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is from Laird and Eastwood. Sorry, Laird and Eastman's uh, underground comic of the eighties and that still had a, a franchise cachet going into the nineties. Uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch is Archie Comics. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is the thing. These are uh, they are um, they are franchises, aren't they? They are. What's the, what's the term? Properties. Uh, thank you very much, marketing expert. <laughs> they are properties. Tank Girl was another. There were many. There, there was one every year. It's just that they were from lesser known comic titles, and they didn't necessarily do that well. But we're already, like, we talk about Men in Black by Barry Sonnenfeld. What was the other big hit of his decade, Adam's Family Values, after his own Adam's Family? That's a comic property as well. Yeah, It's just that it's from the flipping 50s and 60s, so in it's, the, in, it's not remembered. In the New Yorker, am I, am I wrong? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, they, um, single panels. Yeah. The audience's awareness of it stems almost entirely from the, from the series yeah, yeah. with uh, John Astin. Sure. So that's the pedigree that Barry Sonnenfeld came to Men in Black with having been DP with the Coen brothers for their first three films. And oddly, they based the character of Bernie Birnbaum, this borderline offensive Jewish caricature in Miller's Crossing. They based that on Barry Sonnenfeld. And I don't know <laughs> if they ever mentioned to him, <laughs> you know, that that, that kind of uh, cackling uh, Shylock, homosexual, money-lending, untrustworthy uh, hebe bastard in the corner is based on... <laughs> Oh, and by the way, we're not going to work with you anymore because we've got Roger Deakins. I don't know. I don't, why is it okay for John Turturro to play Jews? It's it's astonishing to me that <laughs> that the Coen. This is the thing. If surely if it's if the Coen brothers say it's cool, then it's cool for everybody to play everything. Because twice in Barton Fink and in Miller's Crossing, they've cast him as the most Jewish person yeah, imaginable, yeah. the ultimate nebbish. And he's Sicilian, if he's anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his whole family is in Hollywood, and they're all Sicilians. Um, I, yeah, I just think that everybody should play everybody, and let's all just get along, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that was the pedigree with which he, having done three films with the Coen brothers, Adam's Family, Adam's Family Values, Men in Black, and it's definitely, uh, definitely a culmination, probably a culmination of Sonnenfeld's career in Hollywood and an apex as well. He's had hits since then. Men in Black 2 did well, but it's not very good, is it? Men in Black 2 is not, not so great. I remember enjoying Men in Black 3 more than the second one. Um, Men, yeah, Men in Black yeah. 3 is the time travel one. And Tommy Lee Jones is essentially a cameo, isn't he, as much as anything else? Men in Black, the original, of course. It, would you say this is the first film, uh, the first major film that Will Smith um, 
had a, a kind of leading role that then set him up to be God for the next 10, 15 years. That's an interesting one, yeah, because Independence Day is more of an ensemble. Yeah. It takes the currency generated by Jurassic Park to foreground Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a sidestep, uh, I just a moment ago touched upon diversity and liberal values. Independence Day is incredible for that. How often can you say this? The world is saved by, yes, a Gentile in Bill Pullman, but also kind of an ubermensch Jew mm-hmm. and uh, an African-American in Will Smith, ably supported by his stripper girlfriend fiance mm-hmm. and Harvey Firestein's, I think, relatively positive depiction... Oh my god! Oh my god, I gotta call my brother. I better call my housekeeper. I gotta call my lawyer. Ah, forget my lawyer. That's that's the kind of uh, <laughs> sensibility that is brought to the project by an outsider, Roland Emmerich, an out homosexual working in Hollywood. Now, yeah, of course, there's a hundred of them, but well, not 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 necessarily say... out. Oh, I see what you mean. And in, in right, okay, now I'm with you. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, I think what's important there is that. Todd Haynes is gay and makes many films about the gay experience. Roland Emmerich is gay, but very few people would say, oh, he's a well-known gay filmmaker. He's not making kind of gay films. But with Independence Day, I think one of the reasons it connected so well is everybody's involved. There's even that, you know, and this is uh, crystallised in the film at that point where Judd Hirsch's character takes James Rebhorn by the hand. Do you remember that bit? Because you know the film well. Yeah, don't you? yeah, I do remember that bit. And um... they kind of they sit down in a prayer circle, and Reb Horn says something like, "I'm not Jewish," and he goes, "Ah, oh, nobody's perfect." Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know? yeah, something like that. <laughs> I, I love its inclusivity, and I think that's brought to it by you know importing a flamboyant German gay director. But um, the point was, sorry, the point was about Will Smith. Well, yeah. So later, it? later now, what... editions of Independence Independence Day did not bill itself as starring Will Smith. Uh, he did yeah. not have the... Although Bad Boys did. Bad Boys in 95, uh... it was definitely a double act. And you're right, though, you're right, because Martin Lawrence was the bigger star at the time. They're both coming off sitcoms, but Martin Lawrence was from Martin. Will Smith's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was tea time entertainment. It was, yeah. It still spoke to the black experience in California in the early 90s, but it was something that could be enjoyed by the whole family. So, uh, yeah, I think it was... The first film to say this is Will Smith, this is the man for the you know your your superstar for the nineties. I liked the advertising campaign, which was Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones. Mm-hmm. It it was uh, it it was a cultural phenomenon at the time. It did the other th- another thing that shows don't uh, sorry that movies don't do now. We were mentioning about uh, the the single, the lead single that you'd get, but it also spawned an animated series, which wasn't very good. But yeah, but but that's yeah. something that I miss. Uh, I get very wistfully nostalgic. There's no reason to miss it. <laughs> this is just pure nostalgia. But uh, I miss that. We're talking about cultural saturation, I suppose. And these days, there are so many properties to uh, go back to what we were saying earlier. Maybe they don't always get. There's not the opportunity to have that same level of saturation. That I mean, what does do it now? Marvel and Star Wars. Is there much else? Uh, it feels to me that there's a tentpole film out every single week during the summer now, whereas back in the day there was yeah. two or three uh, major ones. And uh, that gave certain things like Men in Black, like Godzilla the following year, uh, Ghostbusters yeah. in the past, um, to, an opportunity to have these kind of spin-off animated series, which uh, which were, were always fun. And um, I always like how they 
sort of tie into the movie canon a little bit, but not completely. So, you know, Men in Black, the series, is set after the film, but uh, Jay, Tommy Lee Jones' character, is is back in it already. Uh, and I can't remember what, what the cons- what the <laughs> yeah, conceit yeah. is. Uh, but I, uh, for him being back, I, I remember the Ghostbusters cartoon. All the, all the Ghostbusters, of course, look completely different to their film counterparts. And image rights. It's image rights, yeah. yeah but then, the, but they also have like completely different um, uh, suits. You know, they're, they're, all the suits are different colours as opposed to being the brown yeah. from the movie. There's an episode that kind of tries to link the film to the TV show. And uh, explains that how they lost the brown suits because they become kind of possessed by this ghost just just when they're back from Goza. I, th- I think it's some of the ectoplasm from the Goza fight on the roof of Dana's right. apartment is is still on the suits uh, when they get yeah. back to the firehouse or something. Anyway, I I just enjoy that kind of uh, the, the the Godzilla animated show was was quite fun. It, it, in fact, the Godzilla show was better than the film. <laughs> so the egg at the end of Godzilla the the film. Uh, hatches and then Godzilla grows into the into an adult and that's where the that's where the TV show takes off. But it actually takes as much of a cue from the Japanese or more of a cue from the Japanese uh, uh, movies than than the than the original ninety eight American movie did. Which is uh, I've just been extolling the virtues of independence. Exactly. Day, and then his yeah. Next, his next film was Godzilla, which yeah didn't it work. didn't work. Poor old no, anime. but. It, but yeah, you're right. It's that they, in a that kind of kaiju milieu, they set off finding exotic cryptids, which Godzilla occasionally battles. And yeah, it, it was good. Yeah, wasn't it was it? good fun. Yeah, and there are some abandoned ones. The whole reason there was an aliens toy line in the early '90s is because there was supposed to be an aliens animated show called Aliens Colonial Marines, and Kenner just went ahead and made the toy line anyway. Uh, when the yeah. when the show got canned, there was supposed to be a couple of Jurassic Park ones. Uh, one off the original film and one off the back of Lost World. And again, Kenner made a whole toy line called Lost World Chaos Effect, which was sort of mute, heavily mm. mutated dinosaurs, uh, which was which was all based on concept art for the TV show that was supposed to drop and never happened. So, yeah, Men in Black was there. What, uh, that was the business model, wasn't it? Um, 20 to 30 years ago, the business model was make a picture, maybe make a sequel, but definitely commit to an animated series. I remember... There were three animated series spin-offs from Jim Carrey films. He wasn't in any. Oh yeah, of the Mask, Mask, Ace Ventura. Oh, there's a Dumb and Dumber. And Ace Ventura. There was a Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, there was a Dumb and Dumber. I think it lasted a season. Before that, remember as well, Back to the Future and Billy yes. Ted. And it's mad that I'm not even googling this. I still yeah. remember it. The yeah. Back to the Future one had uh, Top and Tails by Christopher Lloyd. I distinctly remember him. Uh, a contraption of his was a bicycle that generated electricity in order to run the the videotape. It's mad. I was thinking about this just a couple of days ago because Jumanji had one. Jumanji as well, had one, yeah, which explored the world of Jumanji. And I wonder why. I wonder when the business model changed and why it had to change. They just make more films yeah, now, don't they? <laughs> don't they just plan for five five yeah. films <laughs> instead of a new TV show? Uh, yeah, it's that is really interesting, actually. Um, it's probably something to do with. It could very well be something to do with. Um, toy lines and toy production because nine times out of ten they were tied with a toy line and I just gave two examples where they made the toy line anyway even though the the show never happened and I wonder if it's the rise in you know iPads and tech and the increase in production costs in China as well means that I you know yeah. I know that affects the cost of st- the the price of <laughs> Star Wars action figures yeah. Star Wars action figures are far too expensive now and you know I'm I'm not really a collector at all but when I do see them in the shop uh, I think what kid can afford 
a bunch of action figures now. That's, that's absurd. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if there's an element little, of that. Little boy lobbying for the reintroduction of the cat and nine tails. All that human rights <laughs> legislation in China has really screwed your toy collection. Yeah, well, it does. That doesn't yeah. bother me. I'm it, just fascinated it, it, as to why things ebb and flow and change. I just think that's interesting. Yeah, and it, it, some of them were almost counterintuitive. I think Starship Troopers had a, an animated spin-off, but although the films we've spoken of all made a lot of money, a Godzilla cartoon doesn't really follow from what was essentially a rather adult-oriented cinematic outing. Ace Ventura, okay, yeah, like, that's kind of kidsy. The mask certainly is certainly lends itself to cartoon humour because it was a living cartoon. But weren't but those making something out of Godzilla? But what, both the mask and Ace Ventura weren't the, the first movies were both fifteens, weren't they? And I think only Ace Ventura no. two was a PG. No, I'd say the original Ace Ventura was a was a twelve. Okay. Mask was probably PG. Although, yeah, I'm I'm confident that Ace, the first Ace Ventura was a twelve, but it does have at its heart a transgender storyline. Which, aside from being offensive and also kind of humiliating for Sean Young, whose Hollywood profile was approaching an all-time low, from which she's never really recovered, and that's always bugged me. If a man's difficult to work with, then he's an artist, like Shia LaBeouf. (laughs) When a woman's difficult to work with, oh, she's a bitch, she's crazy, loony, um, impossible to be on a set with. Whereas blokes always get away with it, don't they? Oh, he was an alcoholic. Mm. Uh, it's in a way, it's just as bad. And I'm not saying that Sean Young's an exceptional actress, but bloody hell, Blade Runner, Stripes, mm. No Way Out. She did some decent stuff. Anyway, getting back to Men in Black, the point of uh, commemorating these anniversaries is to see what we have to say about them. And I think we've definitely got a, <laughs> a surprising amount of recall on the specific cultural moment surrounding Men in Black. And that, actually that type of high production rap bubble mm. from Puff Daddy... Puffy did the track for Godzilla as well. He certainly he? did, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And a very specific time when rappers would routinely drop, I don't know how much money, a million dollars, to get Jimmy Page and Robert Plant on the track. Just like, oh, Sample Cashmere by Led Zeppelin. Uh, you know they don't really release their songs for use in film. Yeah, I don't care. Give them whatever they want. Men in Black is Forget Me Nots. I can't remember which artist did it originally, but we've moved on from, like Kanye can still pay a mad amount of dough for samples but the last five or ten years of rap has been independent oriented uh, kind of beeps and whistles much more underground nothing as lavish as we had in the 90s and the uh, the tracks that were packaged with these films Talking of rap, um, I'll draw our attention back to Dragnet, which came out in 1987 on the 14th of August and has been one of my favourite films for almost that long. I think I must have seen it first when I was nine or ten years old and it was one of a clutch of films that we had recorded, not on VHS, but on Betamax. Dragnet, Raiders, Caravan of Courage. Oh, wow. One of the Ewok (laughs) movies, yeah. Yeah, Um, and when you're a kid, you don't know what the hell it is. You think, oh, it must be Star Wars 4. (laughs) Yeah. But then there was a period where I thought that Flash Gordon was in Empire Strikes Back. Because <laughs> I remembered, if, if you recall, that 
that locale where Timothy Dalton is hanging out is a little bit like Dagobah and Richard O'Brien's there. Yeah, I remember the scene, yeah. And I thought, well, isn't Yoda there? (laughs) You conflate the two films. Because you're seven, eight years old. What are you going to do? Even if you had the internet, like, no kids at school know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm going on about the Goonies and they're coming back with Disney. But Dragnet had its own rap track, which I remember was lambasted a couple of years ago in The Guardian. But Tom Hanks still knows all the lyrics to it, as he does with the bit from Big, Shimmy Shimmy Go Go Bite, Shimmy Shimmy, you know. And before we came to air, Luke, you admitted that you're not very familiar with Dragon. No, I'm not. I, mean, I know it's one It's one on my list to, to, to check out, but no, I haven't seen it. Well, it's a birthday treat to you, since you celebrate your 30th anniversary uh, later on this month. I think that you should make a note to watch Dragnet, and we'll discuss it once you've seen it properly, because... Uh, all through my youth, I really enjoyed it. Never saw it receiving good notices, but I am confident that it's among the best comedies Dan Aykroyd's ever been in. He was a part of its writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very warm-hearted, really funny. The classic Dan Aykroyd technical jargon at high-speed delivery. Yeah, very good at that. Which we all know very and love. In the next few weeks, I'll make sure that we watch Dragnet together, and then we can um, reconvene on the evening glass and go through it yeah. properly. But let's move swiftly on to Gross Point Blank. Wow, what a film that is. Yeah, that's that's up there in my top top 20, top 50 films. One of my favourites, John Cusack. One of my favourite actors. Dan Aykroyd's great in it. But what I really like about the film is just the overall vibe. It's it's the music, it's the, the time. You know, it's obviously about a 10-year high school reunion. It's harkening back to kind of that 80s indie soundtrack. Uh, Mini Driver's uh, really great in it. And... Um, the sense of humor is wonderful. And as you know, this weekend is Points High Class of 86 reunion. Where are all the good men dead? In the heart or in the head? One of my favorite lines, did you ever go to your 10-year high school reunion? Yes, I did. It's as if everyone had just swelled. <laughs> Joni is magnificent in that. But this is the thing. I mean, Johnny's writing for his sister Joni and knows how to write for her and what will look good coming out of her mouth. They've got very very particular mouths, the Cusacks. Um, Annie has it as well, and I think Susie too. There's a Cusack look that both John and Joni do, um, kind of a look of slight perturbment. He does it at the point in um, after the convenience store shootout when he looks at the plastic explosive in the microwave, and there's a slight... Mm. Yeah, I know the I know the look. I know run, the look. Run away. I know the look. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean. Listeners will know yeah. what I mean. Joni's great in it. The um, I still do to myself sometimes. Uh, the bit towards the end when he says, uh, "Look under your desk." It's not like that. That's profit sharing, and you've earned it. And with the mallet in her hand, she raises her arms and says, "All right." Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> by which point she's already drunk, um, swigging wine as she takes down the office, and sort of <laughs> wielding a mallet. <laughs> with two hands like uh, uh, <laughs> ineffectually hitting a, a desktop computer tower oh I love it um, that's a good example I think of perfect collaboration we've spoken often of a single artistic vision when it comes to Woody Allen Francis Coppola, George Lucas but in the case of Gross Point Blank I think the script that was produced which was written by John Cusack, David DiVincentis and Steve Pink, both of whom have cameos, mm. but started with um, a screenwriter called Tom Yankovic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was a teacher, um, English teacher or something, wasn't he? And then... Yeah, yeah. Call it fate, call it karma. Dragnet is directed by Tom Mankiewicz. Right. One letter different, radically separate people, of course. 
But uh, that kind of threw me for a loop when I checked up and realised, oh, in the same week we're going to be talking about people who almost have the same name, and it's not a normal name either. Mankiewicz is a scion of a famous Hollywood empire. As you say, Tom Yankovitz is uh, just a bloke. Um, a bloke who had a great germ of an idea, and they all embellished it and brought it together, wrote to everybody's particular... I mean, Alan Arkin. It's the Alan Arkin role, isn't it? It's as though... Johnny had seen him throughout the 70s and thought, I need to write four specific scenes that can only be assayed yeah. by Alan yeah, yeah, yeah. He's tremendous. Um, you, you used, to do, you used to do some of his lines very well. I can't remember. The, the, the... I know, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember the ones I did. It's uh... Duracell Bunny. Oh, yeah. Um, Martin, it's an awful dream. It's a terrible dream. Has no anima. <laughs> it's that kind of thing, isn't it? That's something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I used to be able to do it a little bit better. I, I, I've... I think it's because the last time I watched it, I focused, instead of on Arkin, I looked at Aykroyd and better understood how the reason he becomes so manic towards the end of the film is it's introduced very early on, and this is the beauty of this script, honestly, among the best screenplays of the 90s. One of the tightest scripts I've ever come across. Like the film from about the third time I saw it, I think it was... I was 15 when I caught it first on Sky Movies. I'd heard the plaudits as soon as it got to video. Those in the know said... John Cusack, Joe Strummer, mm, Dan Aykroyd, yeah. 80s soundtrack. And it took me a couple of viewings to warm to it properly. But it was only more recently that I realised the reason Dan Aykroyd is so manic by the end of the film is that he's popping pills throughout. At the beginning, when he first meets with John, he mentions something. Then when they're in the restaurant ordering the egg white omelette, mm. I don't want to get into a semantic argument, I just want the yeah, protein. Yeah. He talks about the kind of drug regimen he's on. Then as they approach the final gunfight, he's offering pills right. around the assorted yeah, yeah, yeah. henchmen and gun yeah, cells. Yeah. yeah, going back to the point, uh took me a couple of viewings to warm to it properly. Then I began to really understand it. But it was properly emphasised by a fellow that I worked with very briefly in Norwich called Dave Robinson, otherwise known as Dr. Dave. <laughs> Where did he get that name and from? He n- why is he, why is he Dr. Dave? <laughs> uh, I, and I've, I haven't seen the bloke in ten and a half years, but Tim Anderson will remember him. He had interesting hair. Anyway, Dr. Dave noted that Gross Point Blank is a script in which almost every line of dialogue either pushes forward plot or embellishes character. And if you go through it beat for beat, you'll find that there's nothing spare. And I think this is what happens when four people come to work on a screenplay, work on it and work on it. Then George Armitage, a very experienced director by that point, took it. And I, I checked as well. I'm, uh, I did a little bit of background reading and he conceded that when he first received the screenplay, it was more than 100 pages, and he said, I'm I'm not going to touch it unless you get it under 100. They tried, couldn't. He took it, started ripping pieces out, and this is, uh, although Aykroyd didn't write Gross Point Blank, this is the story on every Aykroyd screenplay, isn't mm. it? Blues Brothers, Ghostbusters. He delivers this tome, this Bible of 300 pages. Ah, it's going to be set in space, and then we go to hell. And then Harold Ramis says, that sounds great, Danny. Can I just... Give it to me for a week, and then him and <laughs> <laughs> you know him, him and Ivan Reitman go take this out, take that out, get rid of this. Um, he'll, he'll understand when we get to set. But anyway, George Armitage took the took the screenplay, cut it in half, and on set realised that all of the improvisations which he was encouraging were pieces of the discarded screenplay. But by that point, the the actors playing their characters understood it so well that he thought, yeah, let's let's run with it. They know what should come back into the film, mm. and. Uh, it really shows you get, as we've often talked about, with a supporting ensemble like in Aliens, each character may only have three scenes. 
you have to get your character across very quickly and um forgot Mitchell Ryan oh thank goodness I remembered I was about to say Marshall <laughs> Bell Mitchell Ryan who plays Debbie's father he's excellent at that how many scenes is he appearing maybe three uh, he greets Martin doesn't he and he's about to launch into a, a kind of long-winded um, reproachment of how Blank has treated his daughter and then he says ah oh, fuck mm. it have a drink you yeah. know which and it feels real as well because like it's been 10 years you know um, and he gets the the, the, cl- the wonderful closing line got my blessing yeah, I, that's great or, Here's the house is you know. falling down around him yeah yeah exactly and every little character gets their moment to shine so Michael Kudlitz who modern audiences will know from The Walking Dead I liked from Band of Brothers plays uh, Bob DiStefano Bobby mm-hmm, Beamer mm-hmm. the cokehead and has that poem that he tries to recite yeah. to Martin <laughs> for a while <laughs> <laughs> it's a great yeah he, he, his is a great role sorry before you go on I'd love to bring to the attention of the listeners just before that interaction um, Debbie and Martin are stood on a set of steps and approaching them you see a kind of uh, a kind of wiry guy in a leather jacket and immediately you, you get an understanding of who he was in high school and who he is now Bob Stefano approaches him is rude to him seems to bully him and you know ah this is the guy that got picked on, who went away to Silicon Valley, who made a lot of money, and he wants to come back and be somebody that he wasn't. Mm. Not in an offensive, not in a, a pushy way, not lording it over people, but already they're reverting to the characters they were at high school, as Jeremy Piven's character finds when he's trying to talk to that girl. Okay. It's really piquant in its depiction of you go away for a decade and you come back and it's all the same nonsense. Mm. But sorry, go on. No, I, no, no. I, I, I can't. I, I don't quite remember what I was going to say. But yes, you're right. I, I'm a big sucker for any film which is about coming of age, passage of time, growing up. It's the reason I like Star Wars in the first place. Because that's what that film ultimately is about. It's the reason I um, yeah. like Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. And why that's one of my favourite albums of all time. It's one of the reasons we, we talked about American Graffiti the other week, weren't we, on the Electronic Labyrinth podcast. I'm a big sucker for coming-of-age pictures. And uh, Gross Point Blank is a perfect example. Class of 86. You know, it's 10, y- ten years yeah. ago. And uh, they've... Um, I'm trying to think of Mini Driver when she's... Uh, it's, Oh, so sumptuous the way she says her lines sort of directly into the mic of her uh, of her ra- local radio show as John Cusack walks in and she uh, kind of puts him yeah. on the spot and uh, I can't remember the exact line but she uh, says uh, you know f- flashback or cast your mind back and uh, a little girl uh, you know young girl stands on the steps in her prom dress on the most important night of her life. Uh, and she stood up by her boyfriend. Uh, you know, discuss or <laughs> essentially is what she says and. Um, uh, he's completely put on the spot live on air, and uh, it really sums up what that what that film's about for me. Is that kind of uh, like you say, e- either either ten years goes by and nothing's changed, but you also realise that hopefully you've become the person that you you wanted to become, and maybe you've learned something along the way. So it's uh, it's call it sentimental, call it what you will. I'm always a sucker for those those kind of pictures. One of the things that does upset me a bit about Gross Point Blank, however, and uh, it's not directly related to the film itself, Joe Strummer was really excited about doing the soundtrack. And um, 
he composed an awful lot of material. And um, I'm a big Clash fan. And I'm a big fan of Joe Strummer's solo stuff, especially with the Mescaleros. But it's it's always interesting what Joe Strummer did in his so-called wilderness years between sort of 86 to 98 or something, where he, he, he was doing a lot of soundtracks, did the Sid and Nancy soundtrack, things like that, released one solo album in the mid uh, mid to late 90, uh, sorry 80s, Earthquake Weather. Did a little bit of... Three films with Alex Cox, didn't he? Straight yeah, to Hell and Walker absolutely as well, right. Sid and Nancy. Yeah, and he... he and Ginger Yeah, Train. Mystery Chain with Ginger Jarmouche. But he, he was never quite comfortable. It wasn't until he got the Mescaleros together in the very late 90s that he really sort of felt comfortable in, in what he was doing and what he was producing. But nevertheless, he was turning his hand to all sorts of things, one of which was movie soundtracks, one of which became Gross Point Blank. And like I say, he got really enthusiastic. And I think by all accounts, if I'm casting my mind back to um, the biography that was written just after his death um, by a sort of friend of his in The Clash. I can't remember the author's name now. I'm ashamed to say that. Sorry, my internet's just gone down, so I can't look it up. But uh, (laughs) I know that he was really, really excited and enthused about Gross Point Blank in a way. He hadn't been excited about a project in quite a few years. And then the film took that jukebox soundtrack approach. Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I had that on CD. I, I had the Gross Point Blank soundtrack on CD and I loved it. Uh, I would dip into it for my our student radio show, Fletch, back on Live Wire 1350am at UEA. And I would use the Gross Point Blank soundtrack uh, for a lot of the tunes that we were spinning. But um, yeah. it does mean that a lot of the Joe Strummer stuff got cut. And I think almost all of it got cut. He still maintains a credit on the film for music you know, composed by Joe Strummer. But... Um, there's only a couple scenes I can think of off the top of my head that has original Joe Strummer music, and one of them is so powerful and it's so tantalising as to what that music could have been. I'd love to get my hands on a bootleg or um, some kind of, you know, uh, nudge nudge wink wink acquisition online or something. Um, I don't know if there's any bootlegs circulating of it. Off the top of my head, I don't think there are. Because I'm fairly familiar with Clash bootlegs. But you must remember the scene. It's the one where he goes to his father's grave and pours the whiskey on it. And uh, it's got that great wailing vocal of pain from Joe Strummer. Won't someone help me get the hell out of here? Is the refrain. And he kind of wails it, wails it. Yeah. And I really want to know what the rest of that music was. That's That there is... That's one of a dozen moments of pure honesty in look this is a commercial film it's a essentially an action comedy i suppose yeah in the spirit of midnight run or uh stakeout let's go with midnight run actually i prefer that a lot better. <laughs> oh Be- beverly hills cop midnight run or beverly hills cop one of the good martin breast films rather than john badham but still sprinkled throughout is truth and that moment um uh, first of all as you've explained, every time I watch it now, I think as though it's on Joe's grave. I feel it's an elegy to him, especially given, as you've explained, the circumstances of his excision from the score itself. But, yeah, the pouring of the whiskey for an alcoholic father that died too soon and with whom you had no relationship to speak of before you took off and missed his death entirely. So much going on there. And the other two music cues I remember, which I presume are by Joe... Um, at the very beginning during the hotel assassination, yeah. which is taken from a Bond film, the poison down the mm. thread. That's There's a bit there. And also towards the denouement, the bum, 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 
yeah. I think I think you could yeah, well be right um, about that. Yeah. We, and we don't we don't get much. You're right. And I don't know how twenty years later, there is. It's good in a way, isn't it? There are still things we can't get hold yeah, of. Yeah, there are. I mean, I know that. I know that Joe and Mick were writing just before Joe died, and he was gonna he and was we, gonna do the songs with the Mescaleros, but he'd actually joked with Mick uh, that they were at some event, and Mick said, "Oh, what happened to those songs? Did you not record them?" And he said, he he smiled and he said, "Oh, they're the next Clash album." Uh, so there's, but, but they haven't seen the light of day. There's so much. What's quite interesting about uh, about that though is is um, copyright law. All the baby boomer stuff from the '60s. They're having to undo. Unrele- unleash the vaults and release it all. You know I'm a big Beach Boys fan, and it's we're in a golden yeah. age of official Beach Boys archival releases. Oh, I see. You mean if they don't copyright and sell it. it, then it becomes public That's domain, it. right? So any old shit is getting. That's it. And as, as a hardcore Beach Boys fan, I'm right. in seventh heaven because I'm now getting these, you know, remastered and stereo releases of stuff that I've been hearing on hissy bootlegs for years. And giving my computer, giving my yeah. computer viruses because I've been trying to download them or whatever. Uh, and you know, Bob Dylan's another example. Every year, there's a new Bob Dylan bootleg series out, you know, on Columbia, and and it's purely yeah. just to keep the uh, keep the copyright there. So there, there, there you go. Maybe, uh, maybe right. we'll have um, fast forward another twenty years. We'll maybe we'll be getting the same again for the unreleased Joe Strummer stuff from Growth Point Blank. You've really made me miss what could have been for Joe Strummer in the same way that I often think about what would have come after In Utero for Kurt Cobain. I don't suppose he would have done much more with Nirvana. Um, Maybe an album or two, but yeah, I think he would have gone the Conroe burst route, the route that everybody goes back to roots, Mm -hmm. man and the guitar with, you know, um, definitely I think Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl would have guested from time to time as Novoselic has done with Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters. But uh, it was heading in the direction of Meat Puppets, Lead Belly, yeah. the cover of Man Who Sold the World, and in the same way, like, I yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to see a reformed Clash doing their um, their version of the Filthy Lucrator. Yeah, I'd like to see new material, but to be so close and to know what Strummer's interests, and to have it taken away from us. I mean, it's fifteen years now, isn't it, that he's been dead? Just mm. about. Um. But maybe we're satisfied with the tiny pieces we had in Gross Point Blank. And in some ways, it's better that way. What's it called? Uh, not not the absence of gratification. We're gratified because we've got 5% of a, of a much greater whole that we'll never see. And I like that. We, because you know how a film is released and then within 18 months almost every deleted scene is on a DVD or released through YouTube as supplementary material before the film even comes out everything discussed ad nauseum mm-hmm. um, we touched upon it with Rogue One I suppose that we will perhaps we'll never see another cut of it and wouldn't it be brilliant if we did yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, that, that would be good because it, it's so more electric in our minds
go. I wanted to go back to the if we time and I, I we're getting into the midnight hour now and uh, with every minute that passes it's more and more like the actual experience of spending time with Luke and I 12 years ago at my old crib <laughs> which we just about visited a couple of weeks ago in Norwich even though I wasn't quite sure where I lived I wanted to think more about the the wonderful snatches of honesty in gross point blank so for instance the rushed monologue and it's all the better for being recited at speed that Johnny gives to Mitchell Ryan and Minnie Driver when he comes back and he says, kind of, I had a revelation, I was out in the Gulf doing this thing, I crested over a sand dune, I saw the ocean, it was on fire. And it was then that I realised, we don't need the rest of the monologue, it doesn't need to be paced out over a a full minute scene. His delivery, it was on fire. It connects to you and you know what he's talking about. The same with when he visits his ailing mother, who's, they've got her on lithium. Yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, like, Where's the money I sent? <laughs> they stole. I've had this especially, maybe you will have it later in your life, I'm not sure, but he's been gone a decade. And that was fine until he had to address the things he left behind. And then he realises, ah, time has passed and I can't go back. Yeah. I can't make up for the, the time that's been. And the other truth I really enjoy is when, uh, this is so honest he chances across his teacher when he's first wandering around the grounds of his old high school and tries to impress her yeah that's it in a way that i think we all do whether we realize it or not we want to put across our best side when we surprisingly meet up with someone from our past he starts talking about i I suppose you could say i went west the way of horatio alger yeah Uh, ethan all that terrible ethan Froome damage and she says oh a a real litany of references you'll give me there martin (laughs) um and she doesn't have time to see him because that's the thing. This is an important interaction for him. She's courteous mm. and polite, kindly to him. But this is, you know, he's invaded her world. Her world is that she needs to be somewhere yeah, in one minute. Exactly. And, you know, they're playing my song, the bell goes. And also that she meets ex-pupils every yeah. week. It's special for Martin and he gets a real buzz from it in the same way that when we meet, and you and I have had this countless occasions, we meet musicians we admire or perhaps stand-up comedians and that buzz keeps you going for the whole weekend. I remember around this time last year after going to a screening of, and I haven't mentioned this on the podcast before, but I went to a screening of the new Whit Stillman film, Love and Friendship, and I took along my Criterion edition of Last Days of Disco just on the off chance because I knew he was doing a Q&A. We went along to Chelsea immediately adjacent to the cinema was a, a lovely looking pub and I looked in there and I th- that's Whit Stillman, he's in there and I brought with me the DVD and a Sharpie I was with Andy Eggledon, his partner and Naomi Taylor and I said I, essentially I needed to talk with them for a minute and a half for them to convince me to go up to this director of whom I'm so admirant and so I kind of hold my stuff, hold my stuff guys hold my stuff, do you think I should go in there? So I did, and he was fumbling around with change, you know, trying to negotiate whatever our money is. And I waited a moment, then approached him and said, Mr. Stillman, really enjoyed the new film. Um, I wonder if you could sign this for me. The point is that that elevated me for the next 48 hours, because I thought, I've met with Stillman, wow. And I had the guts to actually speak to him. He signed my DVD. Uh, I didn't collapse in front of him, and what a positive experience it was. Um, For him, it was just giving 60 seconds of his time, but it shows... And in stark contrast, I suppose, and we have to bring it up because, again, it's not something we've mentioned before, but we didn't have a great time with Eddie Argos no. after the Art Brute gig. <laughs> and it soured our relationship with him forever. Yeah, I, I, ne- I never bought an Art Brute record after that. He he uh, was more interested in hearing the thank yous listed uh, from 
the Maximo Park singer on the stage. Whereas I, I, I wanted to mm. say that I really enjoyed his record, and uh, yeah, he didn't. He shot me down. He, I felt pretty shut down. And the the bevy of teenagers around him also. Yeah, I suppose so. Most Tavern. Is Oliver there? Oh. Oliver, close off. Hold on, I'll check. Oliver, close off. Call for Oliver, close off. <laughs> Listen, you lousy bum. If I ever get a hold of you, I swear I'll cut your belly open. Goodness, must be a crossed wire. The selling points of Godzilla to me was not Matthew Broderick or Maria Patillo, but uh, Hank Azaria. I'd never seen him in a film before. For me, that was, wow, the bloke who does Chief Wiggum, Professor Frink. Captain McAllister, Dr. Nick, he's in a film, he's in Godzilla. And then in the trailers, if you recall, he's trodden he on, certainly isn't he? is, yeah. And so I thought, oh, great, right, it's a ten-minute cameo. And uh, I, usually at this point you say spoiler alert. <laughs> <but> <laughs> one of my favourite character actors in my, in my young teenage life in mm -hmm. Godzilla. And then in Gross Point Blank as well, doing uh, uh, just as good a performance. Yeah. I've read that there are many references embedded in Gross Point Blank. There's a couple of Bond references, but there are also references to the rest of John Cusack's filmography, and I've still only been able to find three, and I'll brief the listeners, and then you can give us uh, your final thoughts, or uh, you can wrap it up entirely. I know that the assassin at the beginning, on the bicycle, represents the $2 kid from Better Off Dead. Okay. That's really good, and then when Aykroyd comes out with the uh, double pistols and <laughs> unloads two clips into an already dead body, that's superb. So that's Better Off Dead. And uh, the pen given to him by Carlos Jacket's character and used to dispatch Felix Lapubelle. That's a reference to the pen given to him by Yoni Sky and Say right, Anything. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's all fun. Uh, I had to figure these out myself as well. And this was all kind of pre-internet. So I was really... And it was only when I was living in San Francisco that I saw a rather obscure uh, Caribbean set John Cusack picture called Hot Pursuit. But in that, he has a moment of clarity and revelation while holding a baby, just like in Gross Point Blank, which uh, is yeah, yeah. one of the, the most profound moments in the film. And it's, they do snip at Under Pressure by Bowie and Queen a little bit in order to make it fit. But still, I love that bit. And I love the bit immediately afterwards where Jeremy Piven, ultimate world's best friend right there, met with a corpse that his old friend, who he's only just reconnected with, has dispatched without a second thought. How can I help? What do we do? Let's do this. That's the kind of bond that I look for in friends. I think I've got it with you, little boy. Yeah. That's not to say that I'm a. Uh, that's not to say that I intend on killing anybody anytime <laughs> soon. But I know that if a hitman was sent to murderise me, I think we'd be set. What whip do you drive? Is it a Ford? It's a Ford Focus. And I yeah. love that you just put the, those words uh, in my mouth. Wrap him up in a carpet. Dump him in the Focus. Ask Lex for the alibi. What's it You've got to be really careful <laughs> that this uh, this podcast isn't one day used as evidence in a court of law. I would, I'd, I'd be pleased. I'd go to prison saying, put me in chains. At least it was another listener. <laughs> that takes us up to 27. <laughs> Gross Point Blank. Uh, yeah, what a film. I didn't realise it was an anniversary year this uh, th this year, so thanks for bringing that to, to my attention. And um, I will definitely check out Dragnet, maybe even in celebration of my birthday, just to get another Dan, Dan Aykroyd uh, picture under my belt. And Men in Black, uh, we lament the loss of 
the movie soundtrack, the movie theme tune, the lead single, the music video, the spin-off animated series. We've lost a lot, haven't we? They call it progress. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not so sure anymore. But those, you know, good, the, the good days. I, I, I always enjoy uh, nostalgically looking back to any pre-9-11, pre-Lehman Brothers uh, moment. Uh, and I have... Yeah. Um, I have a lot of playlists that have uh, feature songs that do not come out after 2001, purely, purely for the reason that it was a, a slightly... I guess I was a kid, so it probably helped, but um, a, a, an era where things seemed slightly less scary than they do today. I think it's no accident as well that 1997 now... Uh, we've talked on the podcast before about how we're prone to romanticising an era in which full disclosure there was a, a fucking genocide in mainland yeah. europe you know things weren't so rosy for the people of the former yugoslavia very true. however for a very brief period with clinton in the white house with blair at number 10 and that only really lasted like 97 to 2000 ish maybe for that brief cultural moment things did feel pretty fun mm. i'd like it if we could return to a that, that kind of hopefulness and you know strictly speaking there was we were at, in a very a progressive, hopeful, liberal time before, as you always point out, like everything fell to shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it hasn't it hasn't recovered, has it? I mean, we've got another six months of old Trump. Oh, man. Next time out, I've got a few things to say about <laughs> Trump. Just, in, just to interject, his, I've realised that he's informed the way that we do the podcast. It's because of him that I wince at my own language and realise I need to be more precise the other day, he couldn't recall the word dairy. In talking about the jobs that immigrants take, he said they don't go to work for the milk people. <laughs> and Bill Maher, in his assessment, said he means dairy. <laughs> the other one was—I'll um, I'll tell you this—we don't even—we don't even have to include this, but I had to text it earlier. He said, uh, "Hold on, I've almost got it." In his conversation with Malcolm Turnbull, now the, there's rights and wrongs of leaking from the White House. I agree that the president should be able to speak in confidence and in uh, essentially uh, in private with other world leaders but it is funny when you hear this is what he's been saying he said to Malcolm Turnbull of Australia Malcolm why is this so important I don't understand this is going to kill me I am the world's greatest person that does not want to let people into the country <laughs> what you mean you mean anti-immigrationist it's as though Trump is playing parlour games where you can't yeah. say the actual word and you have to describe things <laughs> yeah, around yeah. it. I'm the world's greatest person that does not want to let people into... Racist. You're, you're racist. Bing. Yes, got it. Anti-immigrationist. Bigger. Bigger. That's what you mean, isn't it? You mean bigger. <laughs> it's just... Kind of, yeah, it's like just Jeopardy or whatever. It's kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> Dairy. Anyway, uh, thanks. Uh, what is a milk person? Uh, anyway. Um... <laughs> Really good to catch up with you on the evening glass, Fletch, and... Uh, yeah, I've had a good time. I hope that everyone has as well. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this issue of the evening glass. Now pay attention, because this will be on the test from August 25th, opening nationwide. Soderbergh returns to cinemas with Logan Lucky, starring Channing, Adam, Hilary Zwank and Daniel Craig. Last action hero Cat Bigelow takes us to Detroit. And from the typewriters of Nick Dimitri and Graham Resnick, Dave Batista in indie actioner Bushwick. And your homework, 
Hunt down and pull the trigger on Dimitri and Jim Mickle's superlative study of inchoate masculinity, Jean Regime, Cold in July, starring the magnificent Sam Shepard. We love you, brother. Please do go to iTunes and review us. You can uh, find us at uh, One Sensational on Twitter, and we're also uh, on Facebook. If you search One Sensational Shot, that's where you'll find us. You can comment and get back to us there. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like about the podcast, whether you agree, disagree with anything that we've said. We really would love to hear from you. And beyond that, onesensationalshot.com. That's where we call home, and you can find out more about the podcast. Go back, listen to previous episodes. Do whatever it is that you need to do on that website. But first and foremost, do leave us a review. We would love to hear from you in the future, and we're always keen to read out listening feedback. You can never go home again, Oatman, but I guess you can shop there. <laughs>